Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive, on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hi, folks, and welcome to this special podcast edition of Insights, where today you'll be hearing from renowned photographer, composer, singer-songwriter, record producer, audio engineer, and visual artist, Terry Manning. In a prolific career spanning more than five decades, Manning has worked with Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Booker T and the MGs, Isaac Hayes, Otis Redding, Shania Twain, R.E.M., and Lenny Kravitz, just to name a few. His contributions to the arts have made our world a better place, and his pioneering spirit continues to inspire today. I was thrilled to catch up with Terry for an in-depth discussion regarding his background and his career, and I'm even more excited to share the conversation with you now. So please enjoy it, and I'll catch up with you again at the end of the show. Terry, welcome to Diddy TV. Oh, great to be here. Good to see you again. Um, you were born in Oklahoma, but sort of quickly moved to El Paso, Texas. Well, I moved. My, my dad moved us all over about every two to three years for a while. But uh, yeah, we were in Oklahoma for a bit, then in Tennessee, but then we moved to Texas, and uh, we did come to El Paso, Texas, when I was a very just about to be a teenager. So that's you know when you're really starting to think. What do I like? What do I want to hear and do and see uh, as a person, not just a, a kid or your parents' kid? So you start thinking on your own a bit. And this was where I got really into listening to radio and, and uh, really getting into records and music and, and, and just listening to it. And so uh, when I was a, in junior high school, we had a junior high dance, a class dance. The teacher said, she was going to teach everybody uh, to learn manners and how to have a date and get along and you know it, so every guy in the class had to ask a girl in the class or be assigned one to this little dance they had well just so happened that the band that they hired to play was a local band which was headed by Bobby Fuller now Bobby Fuller at the time was the big local hero I mean he was on the radio he had his own record label uh, the songs would go to number one locally, so I was really, oh wow, that's the guy I heard on the radio. First band I ever heard live uh, playing at this junior high dance. Now, I didn't realize at the time that he wasn't number one in the whole world, and if he was, he wouldn't be playing at our junior high school dance. <laughs> but it went, it's just a local thing, and you just think, here I am, and I hear this on the local radio, and this is the world. So I went up and I decided I had to meet Bobby and talk to him and went up and asked him uh, some questions and he very nicely started answering. I, he was older than me, of course. I was just a, barely a teenager, 12 years old, 13 years old, something like that. And I had gotten a guitar for Christmas. My mother and father had bought, gone to Montgomery Wards and bought an acoustic guitar because I kept asking if I could have a guitar. Uh, so I had been learning a few chords and listening to some of my Buddy Holly records and things. So I went up to Bobby and said, you know, I'm, I'm a guitarist too. And he said, oh, okay, <laughs> right. <laughs> and I said, would you mind if I set in with your band? I know two songs. And instead of saying, go away, leave me alone, I'm, I'm tired, I'm busy, you're a little kid. He said, sure, come on up here. And actually... Set, gave me one guitar, a Stratocaster, first electric guitar I had ever touched. And uh, he got the other guitar in the band and let me sing and play. And he played with me and we did uh, Peggy Sue, uh, which I knew by Buddy Holly, and O'Donna, the Richie Valens hit of the, that time. So all of it, I was, a, I was in the business. There was it, I, I had done it. <laughs> But, so I started bothering Bobby and ha calling him up, even going by his house, asking him questions. Uh, what, why are you pushing that button? He had a really nice studio in his house he had built. And I said, why are you pushing that? What does this microphone do? How are you writing that song? Just asking all these questions about things. And he answered me. He would tell me things and stop and take time. And that really started me off. It was a, I didn't know it at the time, but it was a mentorship that was 
introducing me to the music world, the music business, music recording, uh, singing, writing, producing, the whole thing. And uh, we became, we stayed friends really until he died. He was sadly murdered a few years later. By that time, mm. my dad had moved us to Memphis, Tennessee. And I was so excited about that. I stayed in touch with Bobby, of course, by mail at that point. And he would mail me the new records that he was releasing and, and just, I would talk and tell him what I was doing. I was hoping to get in a band in, in Memphis. So once, once we got to Memphis, I was so excited because I knew about Stax Records. Uh, I had bought a record at a little, well, a big store at the time called Fedmart, which was an early Walmart-style store they had for federal employees, and my dad was a minister and ministers could go. So I had bought at Fedmart a record called Last Night by the Marquis on the satellite label. And I'd looked it all up and just, just investigated everything I could and found out that Satellite Records was in Memphis, Tennessee, and that band was from Memphis. And then I bought uh, The Dog and Walking the Dog by Rufus Thomas. And, and I noticed they were on Stax Records, but it turned out it was the same address and the same company. So, okay, it's the same thing. So I couldn't wait to get to Memphis. And when we did, as soon as I could, I made my way to Stax Records after school, carrying my guitar, walking in the door and saying, here I am, I'm, I, can you please let me go play and sing and record? And the uh, lovely person that was running the front desk that day, you may know her, Deanie Parker, uh, was one of the early Stax artists, and by the, this time was actually uh, a, a department head at Stax. But that day she was on the front door, she let me in, she talked to me just a little bit, and then very nicely said, well, this was fun, but you, you better go home, and in a few years you can come back. So I was kind of sad and getting ready to leave, and I picked up my guitar, and a guy walked through and looked over at me, and to me, he was much older, because I'm a teenager, you know, <laughs> 15, 16 years old, something like that. And, uh, and, but he came over and said, hey there, son, what, what's in that guitar case? And I said, it's a Telecaster, sir. And he said, well, let me have a look at it. I play a Telecaster. Well, that guy turned out later, was, I found out, was Steve Cropper, who was already the producer and sort of head of A&R and songwriter and guitarist for uh, Booker T and the MGs. Uh, well, let me, let me interject right here. You're having some incredible luck for a 15, 16, 17-year-old. <laughs> I, I have to say. It was crazy. With these mentors. If, if, yeah, these people mentored me, and I don't know why. Uh, maybe I was just so insistent, and then maybe there was some look in my eye that I'm going to do this, whether you help me or not. I just don't know what it was, but, but I, I was respectful always and always not uh, pushing. I was just telling people what I wanted and, be, and being respectful to them as older. I thought they were adults. They were probably 20 or 21 years old at the time. But uh, yeah, that, I was just very, very lucky. At the same time, at school, which was Central High School in Memphis, go Warriors, uh, <laughs> I, uh, some guys there were in a band, and especially one, a guy named Joe Gaston, who was in some of my classes. He was a year ahead of me at that time. But uh, I had talked to him about music a little bit and guitars and keyboards and songs and what were they doing. And uh, the, the keyboard player in his band, which was called Bobby and the Originals at that time, was a guy named Bernie Hill. Bernie was in a couple of my classes and I would really talk to Bernie about playing keyboards because that's, uh, my mother had been a piano teacher and so I sort of had a bit of knowledge about keyboard playing. Bernie quit the band. He wanted to do something else. So Joe Gaston said, hey, uh, can you play keyboards? Do you want to be in this band? Yes, yes, of course. So I rushed home and, hey, me, me, I'll do it. Always say yes. When people ask if you Always say yes. can do something or you want to do something, say yes, go home at night and learn how to do it, and then the next day you should be okay. So uh, I went home and said, Dad, you've got to buy me a keyboard. I'm in a band. And he's, oh, great. <laughs> but he went to Burl Oldswanger Music on Highland Avenue in Memphis, and we bought from the guy there named Bobby Fisher, 
the sales guy. We bought a Wurlitzer electric piano and I took it in and we started going to band practice and there I was in a band and I was in a studio and before you know it our band was, uh, I say our band now, I was the new guy, but they uh, want, wanted to get on talent party with, uh, with George Klein uh, on Channel 13 in Memphis, WHBQ. Uh, we wanted to get on his show Talent Party, so we took the demo by and George said it's pretty good but it needs to be sound a little better. So our then manager, Bobby Fisher, from whom I bought the keyboard, took it to John Fry at his home studio on Grandview Avenue in Memphis, uh, which he called Ardent. He and a guy named Fred Smith were partners in Ardent Records there, Ardent Studios. So Bobby, our manager, took it by John and he kind of liked the music and he equalized it and compressed it a little. Today we'd call it mastering. I didn't know that term at the time, but he mastered our demo. We got on George Klein. Things just went step by step, one thing after another. Lucky being in places and, and having kind people. John Fry helping, Jim Dickinson, Bobby Fuller, of course, Steve Cropper, and then later on several other people that that were so kind and so helpful. So that's sort of the way it started. So when you and I spoke briefly, I was asking you about how you transitioned from just uh, a musician playing in a band to an engineer, because we're going to get into that, because you you engineered so many and produced so many albums. But you said you were at Stax. Tell me a little bit about that, because there was a, a moment where you did say, yes, I can, and, and it got you into the other side of, of music. And what happened there? Well, I would go by there after school. <laughs> it's so funny to say that. And Cropper had put me in, in the tape copying room, which was just down one of their hallways near the studios. But I would go in the tape copy room, and if anyone had a tape to copy, at the time there were not even cassettes yet, certainly weren't CDs or, or digital files. So all you could do if you had a tape made was to go and you needed to get it somewhere, mail it to somebody, you would go have a copy made. So I would sit there in the tape copy room and wait. Someone would bring in a tape. I would load up the two reels and press record on one and play on the other and make a tape copy. Thank you. Okay, bye. But when I wasn't doing that and I heard music coming down the hallways, I would sneak down there and peek in the control room and watch Jim Stewart, Steve Cropper, Later they had guys like Ron Capone and Dave Purple and, and Henry Bush and, and William Brown who were great engineers to learn from. Uh, but I would watch, especially Jim Stewart at the time and Steve Cropper, this was pretty early still, watch them record and I would watch that big console they had and the tape machines and try to figure out what buttons they were pushing and why. And then one day I was in the tape copy room and someone came running down the hallway and said, the engineer hasn't showed up. Hey, you, can you run the board? And, uh, sure. And I went down there and, and just pushed some buttons I had seen them push. Nothing happened. I pushed a few more and did a couple of things. And finally sound came out of the monitor and, and I hit record on the tape recorder and I was an engineer all of a sudden. And uh, from there it just got to be learning on the job and super people. I can't say enough about John Fry at Ardent Studios because he would tell me all sorts of things about microphones and how to what microphone has what kind of a pattern and what what each instrument needs to have for a microphone on it and where you put it and just how to do every all the little things important things and I just learned one by one and a whole lot of it trial and error on the job you know you mess up and you change it and you fix it and you learn not to do that thing you know so it stacks. Well, that's how it got started. Well, did you did you um, was that where you produced your first album at Stacks, or was that over at Arden? I, it ended up. Uh, I was playing in the band I talked about, Bobby in the originals. We changed the name to Lawson and Four More. So some Memphis people, if you're around there, may know that name, Lawson and Four More, at the time. But uh, I was playing in the band, working at Arden. I was the first employee there. This is when John moved from the home studio to a brand new place that he put in. His dad financed it and bought really good equipment and put in a professional for-rent studio on National Street. And uh, I, because I was so bothersome to John about what to do and how to do it 
and I seemed to be learning, he hired me on as the first employee. So I was at Stacks sometimes, in and out after school, as an intern, not being paid, just going in to do stuff, and at Arden now as a paid employee. So the first thing I produced, well first I engineered things, especially by this time at Arden, because Stacks would bring some of their business to Arden. Business would come from Nashville, from St. Louis, from uh, East, uh, West Tennessee, Eastern Arkansas, uh, up from Mississippi. We were sort of in the, Memphis is a central hub for the Mid-South area. All the trains and roads met there and the river and all that, so people just sort of migrated there. You already had Sun with Sam Phillips, Stacks, of course, with Jim Stewart, uh, and now Arden as a rental studio, not a label per se at the time, but a for-rent studio. Anyone could come and pay and make a record. So as an engineer there, I got to work for people from all over. Blues things, the, when they had the the 1968 or 9 Blues Festival, whatever it was, at the, the Shell in Memphis, and all the Furry Lewis and Mississippi John Hurd and a Piano Red and all these great blues artists came in and they wanted to have a record so I recorded blues artists there. Uh, country people would bring gospel things and country music in from, from West Tennessee, I'd record that. Pepper Records or Pe Pepper Studios which was a jingle studio later became Pepper Tanner and then after that was Tanner as William Tanner bought, bought it and, and took it over. But at the time it was Pepper. They made jingles for radio stations. You know, da-da-da-da-da-da. Uh, we'd hear it every, between every record. And commercials and all that sort of thing. So they would bring sessions over and all of a sudden I would have a session of uh, 40, 50 people. Strings, horns, uh, two, a drummer, two, a bass player, two keyboards, two guitars, percussion, all this stuff. Uh, and I had to get it right because it's union sessions and there's no messing around. If you mess up, you don't say, oh, I'm sorry, let's do it again. You have to do it right. That had to be stressful. When you're still in your teens doing this, you don't know stress yet like you do later and when you <laughs> figure out what life's really about and you got to make a living and have a family and all that sort of thing. But to me, it was the greatest fun in the world. I even remember viewing it as a school. Like, why do I need to go to any other school when I have a session for blues guys one day and country people next day, rock and roll the next day, and then on the weekend here comes a 50 or 60 piece orchestra session for a commercial, you know, it's wow. So it was just a, a, a thing you almost can't get today, I would say. Maybe there are recording schools you can go to and that's all good, and you can mentor maybe, or be mentored in a in a studio as an intern, but somehow just being thrust into this. And John, once he knew I could, John Fry, once he knew I could pretty much do it and pull it off, he would just let me go do it. <laughs> go in the office and work on the, his books or something, you know. But uh, so there I am, and you just have to do it. Didn't even have an assistant. And not everybody would have allowed a young person to come in and take that much responsibility. No, and that's, again, I don't mean to say John Fry, John Fry, John Fry, but he was that kind of a guy, and he did not only for me, but for countless people in Memphis. He was one of the grandfathers of Memphis music, really, because he, let, he would give bands studio time if they couldn't afford it. He would, when Stax was in trouble year, a few years later, uh, with a bankruptcy problem and a lawsuit and all that, he just said to, to Al Bell and Jim Stewart, Let's just come on and do your sessions, pay me later. You know, so it's things that you just, it's, he was such a kind, deep, intelligent individual who gave so much. And I, I, I guess I've said enough about that, but he say, certainly gave a lot to me by just letting me go and do it. And for those who don't really know Stacks, of course, it's an iconic soul um, soul label where uh, Isaac Hayes, Al Green, um, so many artists recorded at Stax. And then, of course, Ardent was iconic as well. Um, you recorded uh, ZZ Top. Who were some of the other folks that you recorded at Ardent? Oh, gosh, yeah. Later, ZZ Top was one of the big ones. I worked with them starting with the very end of their second album, 
<clears throat> and then really doing a lot more on their third album, which was called Tres Hombres, and, uh, and worked with them for 18 or 19 years straight on all of their big records, hit records, everything. So uh, they, but we did a lot of the Stax artists, as you, you mentioned, Isaac Hayes, we did the Staple Singers, uh, uh, a guy named Cosimo Matassa, nicknamed Cosmo, would come up from New Orleans and bring some things for mixing. The Muscle Shoals people would bring things in to mix. I uh, remember one day they brought in this crazy little, I thought it was a kid band with a funny record, so okay, we mixed it. It turned out to be One Bad Apple by the Osmonds. <laughs> you never knew what was coming in. Uh, one night, uh, I was almost through, and a, a girl called up and said, can I, I'm on the way from Nashville, and I want to record in Memphis, and I found out you're open. Can you stay and, and do a, a vocal for me? And I said, oh, okay. Turned out it was Tracy Nelson and Mother Earth, and we did her iconic song, Down So Low. And if you don't know that song, you should go check it out. I think Linda Ronstadt did it later. A few people have covered it, but in the middle of the night, she turned all the lights off, and she's out there, and this voice comes out, and I'm, wow, just, I mean, deep, husky, female voice singing this incredible song she wrote. Very moving. It was just incredible. You never knew what was going to happen. I can't even remember all the people that recorded there. So a lot of people don't also understand the role of the engineer or the producer and how you're almost like another musician you're, uh, as a part of the band with as much as you bring to the table. Maybe tell a little bit about some of the projects where your suggestions took the project to a different in a different place or to another level. I remember one time uh, we were doing Isaac Hayes Hot Buttered Soul album and uh, without anybody saying anything because Al Bell who was the main producer I worked with him a lot on the Staple Singers on a lot of Eric Mercury a lot of acts that he produced so he really was also very a great mentor and very kind to just let me do my thing if he didn't like something he would tell me but that was pretty rare because we got along well so I decided on my own with Isaac that I was going to start using this tape delay on the echo on the reverb so I would take the sound that I wanted to send to the reverb chamber and I would run it through a tape machine first and then run it to the chamber. So instead of bah, you would hear ah, it would come afterwards. It was delayed. And I almost did it as a joke. I, I found out now that other people had done that before. I didn't invent it, but I thought I was inventing it. I was sort of making it up as I went along. And uh, so I, I started doing that, and when they came in and listened back, they were just, wow, that's cool. And because I recorded it to the master, to the multi-track master, you couldn't take it off if you didn't like it. Fortunately, they liked it. Became sort of part of the sound. One time I was recording uh, another Memphis group called the Barquets, which who had a number of hits. Uh, starting out with Soulfinger, their great instrumental book. We were recording an album at the time called Black Rock, which they wanted to go uh, in the... They, at that time, Jimi Hendrix had come out and a couple of groups being sort of semi-psychedelic, and they decided they wanted to go psychedelic in a way. So I had the first time that their singer, Larry Dotson, had ever come in a studio. I think he was 17 years old. He walked out in the in the studio, and I decided I would do a tape repeat echo on him. That's where the sound goes, ah, 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 hey, 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 hey. You know, you're you're feeding it back into the console so that it keeps repeating over, over, and over. So he starts singing, and he's singing. Every word is being repeated, doubled and tripled down the way. And I decided to mess with him a little since it was his first time in the studio. I stopped the tape and I said, Hey, Larry, every time you sing something, I hear it several times. How do you do that? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know. I just opened up my mouth and out it came. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of thing you can sort of mess around with things and make up an effect and do it that ends up part of a record. There's so many and I, I would go on for hours, I guess, talking, but we've probably got too many questions. Well, in the uh, early days, of course, you read these stories about how there was no echo chamber and, you know, someone had to really create that that sound. 
and it's basically duct tape and, you know, that that sort of thing. It was do, DIY for sure. Several t- times I've known f- of people using the bathroom as an echo chamber. They would absolutely take a microphone and a speaker with long cables, run it in the bathroom, and have the sound echo from the tiles and the the bathroom sound. <laughs> you make up, especially in those days, today with Pro Tools and all the different uh, digital workstations and the, the way you can manipulate everything and have all these plugins and effects. You can do anything. It's so easy. But back then, you had to make it up. It was DIY. If you didn't, if a company didn't make the kind of equipment you wanted, you went back to the tech shop and got with your tech guy who was hopefully could figure it out with you and you, that you made something. You didn't buy it. You made it. So those days were great because you, I think you learned a lot more doing it hands-on, everything. Just, I mean, it, you just, it's too easy today. I don't regret that. I'm very happy to use it, the easy things, but uh, it's almost too easy sometimes. Well, after Ardent, you, uh, you did a stint in, uh, in the UK, in London, at Abbey Road Studio. Yeah, I worked there for just over a full year, uh, not as an employee, but as a client. Uh, I had been offered a, a, a job to uh, do, produce a band in England, and I said to my manager at the time, look, if we're going to get one, why don't I just move there for a while, get a bunch more? And he did, so I, I produced four or five acts in a row at Abbey Road, and it was such a, the reason was because they asked me, what studio do you want to work in? I said, ha, ah, where the Beatles worked, Abbey Road. So I went there, and I would be the first one there, I'd be the last one to leave, except for the old guy, the security guy they had on the front door. And I would just roam that place and look in all the rooms and learn everything about it and always thinking, no, the Beatles use this, the Beatles use that, so I'm going to use it. (laughs) What was different about Abbey Road? Everyone talks about how iconic a studio it was, but what made it different? It was was the first purpose-built recording studio. Uh, Before that, uh, this was in the mid-30s. I think I'd have to look up to know the exact year, but... At some point in the 1930s, uh, EMI, electro, well, whatever EMI stands for, Electronic Music Industry, something like that, which was the big label. They owned Capital. They owned a lot of uh, the music industry. Uh, HMV was theirs also. So they, they decided we're recording so many people. We go to churches. We go to auditoriums. We set up in a hotel, whatever. Why don't we just have a place where they can come to us? So they put in what what became the first real intended-to-be-forever recording studio. So that's a big thing in its favor. It started the whole thing. Uh, the, uh, the Beatles recording there, and of course a whole lot of the, the British invasion acts of the time, the 60s and, and 70s British acts recorded there. So it just, it got a cachet, it just got a... Uh, an aura that you it you knew everything you knew so many things that had been recorded there for instance I went there once before I ever recorded or worked I went on a tour because they were doing a, an equipment change in studio two which was the main room the Beatles recorded in and this was probably in the mid 80s at that time they uh, or early 80s at that time they had set it up as a museum in the studio part so that you could go in and they had uh, uh, all the instruments the Beatles used set out there and everyone could see them and they showed a little movie and everything. So I was one of the lucky ones to get tickets and I remember walking in and there was a huge sign on the wall and it said these 139 songs by the Beatles were recorded in this room and you just read the songs. You just this one and that one and this one and that one and I want to hold your hand and she loves you and blah 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 and 139 of them and it it, it just kind of knocks you down even as a professional at that time and I had years of experience but just to see that it took your breath away to think so much incredible recording had gone on there so I think that that just started and continued the aura that it had in the industry Years later, when I took over Compass Point Studios in the Bahamas, 
I started a motto for our studio. I said, we're the best studio in the world without Abby in our name. So I thought that would kind of describe it. <laughs> well, it, that, it's like the Sistine Chapel of, of yeah. recording studios. You're in awe exactly. when you go in. You don't even know what to do with it when you see, like you said, how many hits were actually recorded there. Who were you recording when you were there for the year that you were there? Oh, I recorded uh, Joe Cocker and uh, a group called Fastway, which was a semi-big group. Two or three other bands, some of them you might not even know. I, I did a group called Zeno, which was a very big German group and is still, still plays and tours, uh, the ones that are still living uh, and sings all over the world. But uh, in the U.S. they weren't that big, but several bands. Is that where you met Chris Blackwell? No, I had met Chris Blackwell. I, start, I did an album for Muscle Shoals, did a mixing of an album, and the album was to be released on Island Records. So I, I, I mixed this album for the Muscle Shoals people. It was called Smith Perkins Smith. Uh, and I went to England with the album and to turn it in and met Chris Blackwell there. That would have been the 70s at some point. So I went to Island Records, hit, uh, their studio on Basing Street in London, and checked out all the studios, met a bunch of people. Chris Blackwell came walking down the stairs from his office, and we talked and met. So years later, when we did become partners in, in Compass Point, we, we already had a bit of a history. So you went, to, you went to Compass Point. You were there for 20 years, um, that, and you recorded so much music there. Um, I think when I was there, uh, I remember that REM had just recorded there. They had been there for like a month recording, um, staying where we were staying, right across the street from where you guys were recording, and they were already gone before we got there. But uh, I'm, I'm assuming that a lot of bands thought, hey, if I've got to record an album, this is not the worst place to be in the Bahamas. <laughs> That's true. It's, it's, we called it a destination studio because people would come because of the sea and the sun and the the uh, holiday atmosphere they could have, as well as working very hard. I will say, though, people didn't slack off. I mean, they worked hard, and they played hard. <laughs> but, uh, for instance, David Foster, who's a very well-known producer, uh, would come down with acts. He brought down, uh, amongst others, Celine Dion. And David has, a, at the time, had a very large extended family. Uh, he was, at the time, with Linda Thompson, who had been... Elvis's uh, last girlfriend, actually, before he passed away, but uh, he, she was with David Foster now, and they came down with, I think, 11 kids from different families of the former wife and the former whatever, <laughs> and the, so David would put all the family, everybody, in Atlantis, the big uh, famous resort there, and that, they would just play, and he would drive all the way across the island every day to the studio and work. But then he could drive back, and there was the family, and they had been in the sea and in the sand and playing and in the casino and whatever. So I, I just unfortunately saw that Toots Hibbert passed away um, just a few days ago, as a matter of fact. Uh, was, was he recording when you were there? Or? I met Toots, actually, when he recorded at Arden in Memphis on the Nash, at the uh, Madison Street Studios. I think he was working with Jim Dickinson. But I uh, met him in the hallway and talked and hung out a little bit. Toots, of course, had famously recorded at Compass Point earlier, but I didn't meet him there. Sort of paths didn't cross. But the people we had coming to Compass Point were insane. The things recorded there, Back in Black by ACDC, second biggest selling album of all time, a couple of Rolling Stones things, uh, as you said, R.E.M., uh, Jimmy Buffett, Lenny Kravitz. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Mariah Carey, the people that recorded there, the list is insane. Yeah, the list is insane. I can't even imagine what it must have been like, the environment, to have um, all these, you know, huge artists coming through, but then also producing iconic albums for them. What, what kind of, what was the atmosphere like at Compass on a regular basis? It was pretty much a madhouse because... We had two large studios, and the ideal thing, because this is a rental business, you want people in to pay the, the bills and everything, so ideally you want artists in both studios. 
And, but that could, boy, that filled the hallways up. I mean, you were there, it's not a huge facility, hallway-wise, the rooms are, but where you go and meet in the, re in the rec room, we call it, the recreation room, which had Coke machines and things, uh, foosball and pool tables and stuff like that. But uh, you'd hang out there and meet with people, but just walking down the hallways wasn't that big. And with, if you had two big acts in there at once, it was crowded and everybody wanted something always. Now, if, if it were my session on an album I was producing or engineering, I would be in the studio almost all the time uh, on that session. But I would still have to deal with the client in the other studio in some way if they needed something. Excuse me, I've got to go fix a thing at the patch bay or whatever it might be. So it was always a madhouse. It was certainly not an easy thing to do. But of course it was fun and I'd say 98-99% of the people you, you meet in this business are really, really wonderful people. Muse music people are kind of of one mind. They sort of, uh, they're just nice. They, they like music and they love life and they we get along. Now occasionally there was a, a bit of a stick in the mud person maybe but we won't ever talk about them but uh it was just exciting and fun and something always going on i'll tell one little story about it i had a band in our a studio from japan they they were the biggest band in japan i mean they were like the beatles there but they sang in japanese it's not our western style of music of course it we didn't know it it didn't make it over here but in the Orient, in the Far East or whatever you, you would call it there, they were huge. So they were in the A studio and Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, Sean Combs wanted to bring in his Bad Boy Records people and hire our whole studio out. And I told him, I said, I called him Puffy, I said, Puffy, I can give you the B studio for about for the first five days. While the big band, now you don't know them, but they're called whatever their name, and they're really big in Japan, so they're as big there as you are here, so we must respect them. So you can be in the B studio for this five days while they finish, then you can take over the whole building, everything, it's all yours. Okay, the only thing I ask is that you keep the noise down just a little, because the lead singer of the Japanese group was a very small girl who sang very quietly. So when someone sings quietly, you're turning the microphone volume, the amp preamps up louder and louder to get the proper level. When you do that, you get not only her voice, but any ambient sounds that's coming through. Well, you know the kind of music Puffy did, the, the rap music, and still does. They go in the B studio, they put the, these huge Coliseum filling monitor speakers up and start boom, boom, boom. It's just <laughs> blasting. Well, the Japanese people are coming up, can you please stop, you know, please turn it down? And I'd go talk. It turned into a fight. I mean, it was, I'm there in the middle of the hallway between the two sure? trying to separate people. And, <laughs> and, and I was at one point, I remember looking at Puffy right in his face and my, almost nose to nose trying to get him to, to calm it down. And he's trying to say, but I'm, you, don't, you know, I'm Puffy. I need to do this, which I don't blame him, of course. And I looked over and there is an VH1 camera pointed right at us. They had come down to document the puppies things. And they're, they're looking right at us arguing. I thought, oh my God, <laughs> where is this going to go? <laughs> I'll be on the news next. But yeah, it was crazy. You never knew what was going to happen. Well, and a lot of people wouldn't know this about you, but you're an avid photographer and have been an av avid photographer throughout your career. And in fact... Um, you uh, knew William Eggleston, who's an incredible photographer. His photographs are in museums, and he was a bit of a mentor as well, right? In in on your on the photography side, absolutely. It's, you know, <clears throat> it's another one of those. I can't believe it. Looking back, and just lucky to meet great people, be in these places at the magic time that something happened to happen. I I don't understand it, but. Yeah, I, uh, I have been always interested in what I saw as well as what I heard. They're two very important things to me. Uh, and of course, doing photography is capturing the, the part you see the way recording music is capturing the part you hear. So both of those things were always equal to me and important. 
And early on, I got to meet, well, I called him Bill Eggleston, he's now known as William, but that's great. I guess when you get in the Museum of Modern Art, you can go with William. The more formal name, right? Oh, it's, it is more formal, and it or is. Or as they say in the South, highfalutin. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, but Bill and I would hang out, and several other people, not just me, a very close friend of his, Robert Williams, who, whose family, by the way, owned the big pressing plant uh, in the area. Plastic Products press all the records for everybody. So also in the, in the music business. John Fry was quite a photographer. Chris Bell from Big Star was an avid photographer as well. Several people. Mike, uh, Mike O'Brien, who some people may know, uh, was a, became a very well-known photographer in New York, was one of our sort of group who liked music and liked pictures, and off we, off we went doing them all. So I would hang out over at Bill Eggleston's darkroom. He lived on Central at the time on a rented old Italian house. It's, I forget the, the street name, the number, but it's still there. And I lived almost across the street. So I would go over to his dark room because I didn't have one in my apartment there and uh, hang out and borrow, you know, use his enlarger and his paper and chemicals and stuff. Then I moved and I had a place out on Summer Avenue where I put in a dark room. So if he needed chemicals, that he didn't have, he would drive out there, can I borrow some Dectol? Okay, sure, come on. <laughs> and come out and, and I'd, I'd give him a, a can of, of developing fluid and all this stuff. So we were very close, and this was even before he took his photographs to to Museum of Modern Art, to John Sarkowski there, which got him known in his first show, right. and it just all exploded for him there. And, I remember him going on that trip and then coming back and saying, we well, won't believe what happened. He liked them. And <laughs> of course he liked them. Well, I've always liked them. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, and I, I kept that up through my whole music career as it, as it kept going. Even early on, I would do album cover shots for people. Somebody like the Gentries would want band shots taken. They'd ask me if I could do it, or the Box Tops, or any, a lot of the Memphis artists in that area, Mid-South artists. Uh, I had a couple of shots I had done in the late 60s that got on album covers for pretty well-known artists. And I was a uh, photojournalist for uh, a newspaper called NME, New Musical Express, out of London, shooting uh, photos and, and taking pictures of acts when they came to the U.S., British acts, for them. So I was really into it as much as music. But when you start having success like I fortunately did in the music side, and you get hired to do this album and then hired to engineer that or produce that or whatever, you do it. You, you go on with that. So it sort of took over because it was paying the rent, you know. Well, were you, were you photographing some of the people that you had in the studio, some of the artists? Very little of that. And I know it sounds crazy, and sometimes I could kick myself for being in a room with Otis Redding. Why didn't I take some pictures or something like that? But I, maybe it's just me, maybe I'm weird in this way. I can't really mix the two. When I start one thing that I'm doing, it's a job to me, and I'm focused on it, I'm going to do that, and I don't let anything distract me. So if I'm working on music and I'm listening to the sounds and I'm adjusting the, the EQ or moving the microphones or do whatever, I'm so intensely into it, I don't think, oh, that's... Uh, that's uh, James Taylor over there, I should be taking a picture, you know. I don't think of that. It's not in my mind. Likewise, if I'm out shooting photos, if that's my day to shoot pictures and I'm going out, my whole brain turns around. I just, I literally feel it turn and the whole f focus uh -huh, of things becomes different. Uh, and I couldn't at that point be writing a song in my head or something. It's just they don't go together. I can't mix them. So... No. The answer is no. I, I could have taken so many pictures of so many stars or whatever that I wish I had, but I didn't. And I, in a way, I'm glad I didn't because I can't, I can't mix them. Well, and I know that you've, had, uh, you've exhibited your own photography in recent years, and you have a book out of your, uh, some of your photographs. Um, but before I get to that, I do want to ask you a question. What do you think is sort of the state of the music industry right now? You've, you've really seen every era of the music industry, and you've been involved with it, and you're still involved with it. 
And so I thought it would be interesting to get your perspective on where the music business is now, the recording industry uh, in general, music business. Well, there is still a music industry, but it absolutely is not what it once was. I think humans will always love and crave music. It's part of our human psyche, our existence. It's from the very earliest days of people banging on logs in a jungle or, or, or whatever. You know, it's, 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 music is something humans have always made. Henry VIII was a songwriter. Uh, the, the, supposedly he wrote Greensleeves, or What Child Is This, whatever you would call it, uh, for Anne Boleyn. Uh, they, we can't prove that, but uh, that's what the, the, has passed down over time. So music has just always been something people want, and I don't think it will ever go away. Styles change, yes. You can go from Over the Rainbow to Cardi B is a big change, <laughs> and, but it's, both are valid, so it's great, you know. But I do think the industry itself was severely crippled by the Internet. And I love the Internet. I use it every day. You use it every day. It's the greatest thing humans have ever invented and the worst thing, maybe all in one thing, because it's got awful things on it and it's got wonderful things on it. But it hurt the music industry because people with Napster and early uh, uh, music sharing sites, they call them, uh, would steal music. Now, music is a product. People such as me and lots of other people, many t more talented than I, have made music forever because they loved it, but also as their job. They want to sell it. Bob Dylan wrote his songs as poetry, more or less, incredible musical poetry, but I'm sure he was very happy when the checks came in. So it becomes your job, your career, and that has severely been been lessened. I would I feel bad for new bands coming up or new artists. It doesn't mean they're not going to make it. It doesn't mean they shouldn't try because they love it. They want to do it, and some will make it. But I think it's a lot harder now. It's a harder road now because labels don't have. Here's the problem: when the labels don't have the money coming in from people buying it, they don't have the money in their coffers to spend to hire studios, to pay producers, to pay for hotels and flights and meals and all that sort of stuff. A budget on an album I, I used to do, uh, let's say 20 years ago, might have been three dollars to $500,000 for a medium group. That, that's a lot of money. Today, you would never hear that for a medium group, for a new group. You might get 50000 from a strong indie label or a a major that was really ready to, to, to do something might put out a little more, but not near as much because that the money just doesn't come around in that circle. It doesn't come back to the studios and then back to the hotels and back to this and then more people buy more and here it comes around again in a circle for people. So, but that having said that, there are wonderful things that people can do today. 20 years ago, you couldn't go to your den or bedroom in your house on your computer and record your album and make your album cover and then on that same computer upload it to YouTube or SoundCloud or wherever you would put it and potentially the very next day someone in Israel or Japan or Russia or anywhere can hear it. That's an amazing thing that we have at our disposal today. The problem is the marketing of it. If you are that new band and you do make your own thing and you do put it up on YouTube, you don't have a machine behind you that would be a marketing department at a major label who are out buying advertisements and calling record, uh, calling radio stations and, and record stores and doing all the things that they do. If you're on your own, you've got to do it yourself. And a lot of creative people have a hard time doing, kind of like me in the photography and the music, they have a hard time creating the music and then becoming a business manager. You know, it's, so people just need to learn new ways to get themselves as many places as they can and ways to, to finance it. Yeah, it seems like there was a, a disruption in the ecosystem. For centuries, we've had patrons of the arts, and if you want to look at labels like patrons of the arts, they had the money and they were able to spend money on emerging artists and and really kickstart someone's career and, and get them going. And, and there's been a disruption 
in that that ecosystem to where now, like you said, artists have to do so much on their own, and we can only do so much as human beings. And your focus, if you're an artist, should be on creating your art. And it's very hard to then, in the evening, go market yourself or whatever else you have to do, book your own tour, <laughs> um, exactly. create your album. It's it's a lot of work and, and, and very hard for a lot of artists. It'll be interesting to see how, you know, maybe over time that changes and we get more settled. In well, an, another, way, another way to look at it, <clears throat> in my opinion, is if you go back to classical music days, let's say 17, 1800s, uh, Bach or Mozart, someone like that. They, they didn't make, they didn't get rich making their music. Even though Mozart is a name almost everybody in history knows since his time. I mean, he is a very famous musical guy, but he didn't make a fortune. He wasn't rich at all. If you've seen the movie Amadeus, of course you saw pretty much what it was. They were reliant on these patrons of the arts, the king or the prince or the court or whatever it was, exactly. to, to give them some money to say, well, would you write me a sonata on whatever and I'll pay you so many guilders for it or whatever it would be. Uh, and uh, people like Mozart and Bach took students and taught lessons. <laughs> they took people's kids to teach them. You think somebody like Johann Sebastian Bach, who in my mind created our form of Western music out of his single mind, you think he ought to be teaching a kid, five-year-old kid to pay piano? No, but he had to, to make his living. So in a way, we had a bubble. The music industry became what we know and love of it over the last number of years. Maybe you could say really getting started cranking up heavily in the 1950s into the 60s. You could make somewhat of a case for big bands, Glenn Miller, late 30s, something like that, maybe, or 40s. But really cranking up to where people could make their entire career, and a lot of people, making their entire life be a singer or a band member or whatever. And uh, you had people like a Jimmy Page or an Eric Clapton or whatever that, that made enough money to retire happily forever never had to do anything but what they loved music and not go sell shoes or work at an insurance company or something like that and do it as their, as their night job for music. Uh, we had this great bubble of about 50 years and then it's really starting, starting to go back or has gone back in a way to what it was historically before that time for centuries where people now have, you have people like a Kickstarter or all the things where people can use, make their own patrons up, a group patronage sort of, or Patreon is another company that will support things. Sure. It's sort of the equivalent of the king or the prince giving Bach the money in a way. So maybe, right. maybe that'll be something people can live on. And people, I don't want to discourage people because if, you, if it's in you, if you're musical, if you can't help it, John Lee Hooker said, it's in him and it's got to come out. And that's really what it is. If, it's, if you're that musical and that loving of it, you're going to do it. And you should do it. Just hope you can make it in this tougher career, uh, tougher career period now. And um, it's always good to have an education, too, if you might not make it. <laughs> this is true. It's always good to have something else to do. But like you said, when you're a creative person, you're the prime example of, of that that was in you, and it was going to come out whether it was photography or it was music. Uh, and when you're driven that way, um, most people can't help but take those paths. And so you, you wish them the best on that journey. What are you doing these days? What are some of the projects you're working on currently? Well, I can't ever, usually can't say what I'm working on musically because the artists don't want it known until later what you're doing. But I am mixing for people, mastering for people, uh, I just did a TV theme for a, for a show that's coming out soon, uh, musically, because I, I write and play music as well. And uh, I'm always doing musical things. But it's a little different because a lot I do now, I do it all by myself to send me things over the internet, especially once the virus lockdown thing started. You'll get things sent to you over internet that pay you by PayPal. You send it back to them over the internet. 
and you've done it, it's the same thing. You've mixed, you've mastered, whatever, you've overdubbed, whatever they want you to do. But uh, it's a little different because the human interaction has been lessened. But I'm doing that. I'm also working uh, on a very big photography thing. We've, we've had exhibits in a bunch of museums and galleries over the last few years, which we've now pulled back and stopped as uh, I've had people helping me, some really good people that are talking, that, things I can't do, doing the business part of it. I'd rather not, I can, but I don't want to. You know, they, they need to make the phone calls and contacts and people so I can think more about the visuals or the sounds or whatever. But I have people putting together what will become a really amazing new exhibit in a very important large place with large scale photographs I can't say too much about it, but I'm really excited about it. Things are just as busy, more busier than ever now, I would say. <laughs> Sometimes I wish they weren't, but it's it's good. Well, when some of these projects come to fruition, we, we hope you stop back by because we'd love to hear more about them. Um, before we go, I did want to ask you one last question, which is, um, I think you have some unique perspective, having had such a long and very interesting and amazing career. Um, what advice would you give to a young person who says, I want to, this is the path that I want to go to. I want to be a musician. I want to be an engineer. What advice would you give them? <clears throat> That's the hardest question of all. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you want to be an engineer, there are good schools you can go to. Um, there's a great one in Nashville called Blackbird Academy, taught by some really, really good people, brilliant people who have been in the industry quite a while and know what they're doing. I recommend, a, recommend it above all others. There's a couple of other big ones, SAE, Full Sail, different things you can go to. You will learn what to do there, but you may not learn as much how to incorporate it into what you need to do. So the best thing to do on a technical side is if you've gone to this school, great, learned, great. But even if you haven't, try to get into a studio that does a lot of work. Nashville, New York, LA, Memphis, London, wherever you, you might be where studios are. And they're all over. And there are a lot of good medium-sized studios. If you can get in, even as an unpaid intern, don't worry at first about being paid. You've got to learn what to do. I, I tell people all the time, it's as important to know how to deal with people and deal with situations as it is how to turn knobs and move microphones. Because a session is a psychological event. Everyone's a little different. Artists are very often quirky in a way, in a good way. I don't mean that negatively at all. And have, you have to learn to deal with people. It's a very psychological situation you learn how you need to learn how to make a session flow you if something goes wrong you don't jump and scream and go crazy you you learn how to calmly say oh we can do this instead you just and you have to learn what those things are that you'll do instead you need to learn the chain of command if you go in as an intern an assistant engineer let's say you need to not try to take over the session you need to know who your boss is and who that boss's boss is and who that boss's boss is and pay proper respect to each of those things or you'll be thrown out. You need to learn, but not to say you don't suggest things. If you really know something good, you can say it, but say it in the proper way. And I, you can't really say what that way is. You've just got to learn to get along because a session, a recording session needs to be happy. Sometimes they're not and good things can come out of that too. But happy sessions the music shows up happier too and better and people get along better. So I, I like to say you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist as much as you're an engineer or producer. Now if you're a musician and wanting to get your music out, you just got to put it everywhere you can. You've got to push, push, push. If you can find a friend who's good with business, who likes your band, maybe they can help you do those things you don't normally do as well musically if you're a musical person. So maybe put a team together, get some friends to help. They might get pushed out later. <laughs> I've seen bands with a great lead singer and all of a sudden the singer's signed and the musicians are pushed out and, and they become Cindy Lauper. Oh, I mean, or whatever. But uh, 
that, but the, her band came back and had hits too. It's the Hooters. So there you go. Right. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Terry. That is very good advice. Um, please, if you're ever in Memphis, we'd love for you to stop by the studio and we would love to keep in touch, as I said, on some of your current projects. So we'll, we'll do that and enjoy your time in El Paso. Great. The weather's great. The animals are great. And we do enjoy it. Amy, thanks so much. It was my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Terry Manning. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more of the leaders and legends in the Americana and Roots music scene. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.